Have you been contacted by anti-government radicals? These terrorists want to collapse society as we know it, causing untold death and destruction, and all in the name of freedom, something that we know is really just an unbelievable dream that only serves to unsettle the population. Brought to you by the government, who you can definitely trust. Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 49, Australia's Extinct Birds. Welcome back to the show. For a little while now, I've wanted to do an episode looking at the Australian birds that are no longer with us. It's a sadly all-too-common story that we hear over and over again. Wherever people go, death and destruction follows. We just can't help ourselves. We roll into town and the first thing we do is start changing the environment, killing things, pulling up forests for pulp or other tree-related products, planting crops, building shops and brewing hops, and always, always, the native flora and fauna suffers. All over the world, we see animals that have either been driven to extinction or are only holding on by a thread. So today, I wanted to do a review of the Australian birds that have been lost since Europeans turned up, because I knew there had to be a big old list of extinct birds out there somewhere. So, you could imagine my surprise when I went digging and found that there is only one just one bird that has gone extinct in Australia since European colonisation. Just one! I was shocked! I mean, that's excellent, albeit unexpected news. Birds! We build them tough in Australia. Yo, honestly, uh, I think it comes more down to dumb luck than anything else, though. So, who is our one and only lost bird? Well, I won't keep you in suspense. It was the Paradise Parrot which was last seen alive and in the wild nearly 100 years ago, way back in 1927. So, join me today as we do a deep dive on this lost Australian parrot. Who were they? How did they go extinct? And what lessons can we learn from this sad story? Bird of the Week. Right, so before I begin, I better lay out a couple of caveats about how I am defining extinct species, because I don't want you all to be getting in the comments at me about this. So first, I'm only talking about the Australian mainland. People may remember from our Norfolk Island episode that there have been issues over there, and at least one bird has gone extinct from that island. I also know that at least two birds have gone extinct on Macquarie Island in the Southern Ocean, another island that's administered by Tasmania. Actually, the story of what went down on Macquarie Island is quite interesting, and I might revisit that properly at some point in the future. But anyway, islands are out, islands don't count. Next, I also haven't counted subspecies in this episode. You had to be a full-blooded species. Now, that does mean there are a few little birds that don't get featured on our list. It also eliminates the kangaroo and king island emu, which were both considered to be subspecies of the mainland emu. You know, that they were also on islands too. But this does raise a far more interesting question about the real-world implications of how we define species. 
often conservation efforts are targeted at protecting a species. Subspecies are usually considered to be merely variations of the same species and so not always worthy of saving, at least insofar as how government dollars get doled out. But, as we have mentioned numerous times on this show, the question of where the line gets drawn between different species is never clear-cut. Should we have thought of those birds that have been lost in Australia as fully-fledged species? Yeah, it's hard to know. And now that they're not here, we will probably never know. Certainly, I think there is a good argument that the dwarf species of emu from Kangaroo and King Island should have been considered full species, but, like, that's just my opinion, man. Also, they're from islands, they don't count. For today's purposes, though, we are going to stick with the official word because it's going to give us the opportunity to tell one cohesive story about one bird. So, let's stop mucking around with definitions and get to that bird, the Paradise Parrot. Maybe we should start with a description of our bird. The Paradise Parrot is, well, you know, it's a little parrot, only about 27 centimetres long, or 10 inches if you live in America. For reference, if you are familiar with the red-rumped parrot, which is common on the east coast of Australia, this is about the size that the paradise parrot was. So quite diminutive and sleek, they primarily fed on grass seeds on the ground. In fact, the red-rump is one of their closest relatives. Both birds are members of the same genus, Cephatus, nailed it, meaning jeweled bird. Cephotus. Cephatus. Pretty sure now. And that isn't a bad name for them. Much like the red rump, the paradise parrot was a beautiful little bird, sporting some startling bright green blues and reds that would have appeared to shimmer a little. They had a green underside, blue around the neck with a red strip right above their beak, and another one across their brown wings. It seems that their closest relatives, though, are the golden shouldered parrot and the hooded parrot. Both of these birds live in the far north of the country, whereas the paradise parrot was once native to New South Wales and Queensland. The trait that these three cousins share in common, though, is their unusual nesting practice. As I'm sure many of you know, most parrots nest in tree hollows. Parrots don't tend to make nests. There is, of course, an exception. The monk parrot, which builds large communal nests, but we might do a special episode about them at some point in the future. But these three parrots, these three are different because they nest in termite mounds. To give an example, the hooded parrot excavates a tunnel into a termite mound that can be up to 50 centimetres long before laying its eggs. The burrowing process can take two to three weeks to complete, and we can assume that the paradise parrot would have had a similar behaviour. Uh, Nathan from the future here, you might be wondering how these birds nest in termite mounds without being disturbed by the termites. Well, it turns out the termites just seal off the holes, creating two separate chambers between the bird's nest and the termite nest, so they don't actually interact with each other once the nest is constructed. How about that? Back to Nathan from the past. Breaking through the tough outer shell of a mound can be difficult, but once inside, the termite mound offers the birds greater protection for their eggs, at least from traditional predators. So that's our little parrot in a nutshell, quite beautiful, nests in termite mounds, lived on the east coast of Australia around Queensland, New South Wales border. 
So maybe now we should switch to tell the story of their discovery, decline, and extinction. And to get to their discovery, at least their European discovery, we can safely assume that the indigenous population was well aware of the birds. The first ornithologist to notice and capture the bird was a chap named John Gilbert, who first identified the bird back in 1844. Now, Gilbert was an assistant to the very famous John Gould, the OG ornithologist of the 19th century. But Gilbert is himself an interesting chap. He travelled out to Australia with Gould and his wife Elizabeth in 1838. And let me tell you, this was one hard-working assistant. By all accounts, over the seven years they spent in Australia, he found and collected more than 400 species of bird, 60 of which had never been formally documented before. And throw on top of that another 300 mammals, and you can see he was a busy boy. He first saw the Paradise Parrot towards the end of his time in Australia near Darling Downs, which is a region on the western side of the Great Dividing Range in the south of Queensland. And when I say he saw it, I really mean to say he shot it, because that's how one studied birds in the 19th century. You shot the little buggers so you could get a nice proper close look at them. By all accounts, Gilbert was absolutely captivated with the bird and regarded it as his favourite find, which after handling 400 birds, really goes to show how beautiful it must have been. When he gave the specimen to Gould, he asked if the bird might be named after himself. Apparently, at the time, he wrote to Gould saying, If you have not already honoured my poor name in your works, I know of no species that would delight me more to see Gilbertii attached to it than this beautiful bird. So just to clarify, he's asking that the bird's binomial species name be named after him. So in Latin, the possessives take the form of the suffix I on the end, hence Gilbertii, which would translate as Gilbert's parrot. Gould himself was likewise impressed with the bird, writing, The graceful form of this parakeet, combined with the extreme brilliancy of its plumage, renders it one of the most lovely of the parrots yet discovered. And in whatever light we regard it, whether as a beautiful ornament in our cabinets or a desirable addition to our aviaries, it is still an object of no ordinary interest. High praise, but also interesting to note the language really objectifies the birds as something to be collected and admired rather than a living creature with its own intrinsic value, which is important to the environment. How the study of nature has changed. As to naming the bird after Gilbert, though, Gould here was less impressed. He wrote back saying, As I have lately named a whistler after you, I cannot with propriety add your name to this new bird. So instead he gave it the name Pulcarimus, which loosely translates to beautiful. Although, as it turned out, he was mistaken in his message to Gilbert. The whistler he thought he had named after Gilbert, he had actually named Pachycephala in Ornata, which translates again loosely as the plain thickhead. Um, which which seems like a rather insulting name for a, a, a whistler, um, but there you go. However, we shouldn't feel too story for our old friend Mr. Gilbert. He has plenty of other things named after him. For starters, while I missed out on the scientific name to that whistler, the plain thickhead's official common name is Gilbert's Whistler. We also have Gilbert's Potteroo and Gilbert's Dunnet, which is a type of marsupial nouse. They're both named after him too. Not to mention the Gilbert River in far northern Queensland. He has a whole river named after him. In 2015 as well, 
A honey eater from Western Australia was renamed Gilbert's Honey Eater in honour of him as its first collector as well. Bit of a controversial move that one as we are increasingly moving away from using people's names in the common names of animals. It was an accepted practice back in the 19th century but in the 21st century it really is seen as being a bit colonial and out of touch to have an Englishman's name on an Australian bird. But uh, well, there you go. So as uh, far as I'm concerned, Gilbert has been plenty honoured. He doesn't need to have his name on the Paradise Parrot. But while we're on Gilbert, we might as well finish off his story because the poor guy came to a rather sticky end in 1845. He had joined an expedition being led by the famed explorer Ludwig Leichhardt from Port Essington in the Northern Territory to the Darling Downs back in Queensland. During this expedition, Gilbert would encounter the Paradise Parrot several times, writing of his green parrot of the Darling Downs, noting its beauty and pleasant voice, but he never seems to have discovered their unusual nesting sites. However, when the party arrived at the Mitchell River in Cape York, an altercation occurred with the local indigenous people, and Gilbert reportedly died after being hit with a spear. Now, this story is sometimes disputed. Accounts state that the wound was smaller than a spear, so it's theorised he may have just got caught in friendly crossfire and been shot. Uh, either way, there is no way to know for sure what happened, because he was buried on the spot and um, they set a fire to the burial site for, you know, um, logical reasons, and um, his grave has actually never been found. Today, the information that we have on Gilbert's life largely comes from his personal diaries, and in those diaries, he's shown to be fairly respectful to the Indigenous Australians, which was unusual at the time, so it's doubly unfortunate that his death occurred in this way. But enough of Gilbert and the discovery of the Paradise Parrot, let's move on to their decline and disappearance. In the years following its discovery, the bird remained a familiar sight to the settlers in Queensland, who sometimes referred to it as the soldier parrot because of the upright, alert posture it would adopt. But as people spread and changed the land for grazing cattle, this had a negative impact on the bird. It seems that because its nests were easy to access from the ground, at least to people, poachers also made off with many of their eggs. This was largely due to collectors in Europe wanting to include the Paradise Parrot in their private aviaries. No doubt they were of a similar mind to John Gould and wanted them as a pretty ornament. There are accounts from the time that say no one can see it without desiring to possess so beautiful and graceful a bird, and large sums are paid for handsome specimens. In fact, this is how the bird got its name, as it became known to collectors in Europe as the Paradise Parrot. Part of me feels this was a clever piece of marketing, come up with to drive further interest and prices in the bird. As you might expect, the little grass-feeding parrot didn't travel well, and it was uncommon for one to last more than a couple of months in captivity. I think it is hard to appreciate how beautiful a bird it must have been, as today we only have the musty old stuffed remains in a handful of museums and a small collection of black and white photos taken in the 1920s. But they must have been truly gorgeous, so much so that it aided in their journey to extinction. But while poaching would have had a negative impact on the Paradise Parrot, compounding factors would have included increased prevalence of feral cats, changing land use to increased agriculture, and also the changing nature of fire within the landscape. 
the paradise parrot was reliant on grass seed, the growth and development of which was regulated by the burning of the landscape. And with colonisation, this changed and limited the growth of food. A little more on that point later. All these compounding factors led to the bird's decline, such that by the start of the 20th century, they were already considered to be extinct. And it is here that we meet the next player in the story of the Paradise Parrot, Alec Chisholm. Now, Mr. Chisholm was a journalist and naturalist. He represented a new voice in conservation at the beginning of the 20th century. In particular, he championed moving away from shooting birds as part of the scientific process, believing it to be an outdated practice that did more harm than good. I mean, who would have thought it? Shooting the birds could have a detrimental impact on conservation efforts. You know, it's a truly startling insight. Of the people who shot birds in the name of amateur science, he said the average private collector is a relic of barbarism and a perversion of civilization. He is more. He is a relic of sin, masquerading under the honourable name of science. Strong words. Actually, a lot of accounts of Chisholm from the time note that he was a somewhat quarrelsome and difficult person to deal with, but you know what, if he's doing it on behalf of birds, I think that's a-okay by me. By the time he turned his mind to the Paradise Parrot, Chisholm had already made a name for himself as a teenager when he led a campaign to stop the shooting of egrets for fashion purposes. But for our story, he comes on the scene in 1917. By this stage, there had been no reliable sighting of the Paradise Parrot for years, and they were considered to be extinct already. But Chisholm was not convinced. He put a call out in the press, hoping that people would find evidence of their continued existence. He had to wait for four years, but the birds were dramatically rediscovered in 1921 by a grazier, one Cyril Gerard, in the Burnet River region, some 300 kilometres north of Brisbane. Cyril was the first and only person to capture the birds on film. Alec Chisholm came out to join Cyril, and he saw the birds himself, and they even managed to find them at an active nesting site, which raised some small hopes of the continued survival of the species. Chisholm then became a champion for the birds. In 1922, he and Jared came up with a plan to breed them in captivity for intended release back into the wild. Sadly, this idea went down the drain when the only active nest failed to hatch its eggs, and no active nests were ever found again. Although, given how difficult it is even today to set up captive breeding programs, it is unlikely that with the limited knowledge available to them in 1922 that they would have been successful. Chisholm also advocated to ensure that Queensland's Animal and Birds Act offered protection to the Paradise Parrot, but he and his birding colleagues knew that legal protection alone would not be enough. He also penned an appeal for the public titled The Paradise Parrot Tragedy. He concluded with this statement. The question arises then, what are the bird lovers of Australia going to do about this matter of the vanishing parrots? Surely it is a subject worthy of the closest attention of all good Australians. Meanwhile, let us, without reflecting on the claims of true science, dispute the dangerous idea that a thing of beauty is a joy forever in a cage or a cabinet, and disdain, too, the lopsided belief that the moving finger of civilization must move on over the bodies of the loveliest and the best of nature's children. It was an emotional appeal, but words that were lost on the wind. And as is so often the case, it was all too little, too late for the Paradise Parrot.
Likely, when they were rediscovered in the 20s, they were already beyond saving. Cyril made his last confirmed sighting of the birds on his property in 1927, and aside from rumours, the birds have not been seen since, and now very much considered extinct. It is also true that in the 1920s we didn't have the knowledge or tools that conservationists have today to make a real effort to save an animal on the edge of extinction, but there are lessons we can learn from the failure to save the paradise parrot that could apply today. As it turns out, one of the paradise parrot's closest relatives, the golden-shouldered parrot, is today flirting with extinction itself. The golden-shouldered parrot is maybe our closest example of what the paradise parrot looked like. Swap out the red streak on their wings for a golden one, and the birds look remarkably similar. Some consider the golden shoulder to be one of Australia's most beautiful birds. Just like the paradise parrot, the golden was highly valued in the pet trade, and for a long time illegal smuggling also threatened its numbers. Today, it is estimated that there are only about 900 of these little guys left. And just like the paradise parrot, we know that it is habitat degradation that has been the main cause of their decline. Just like the red rump and paradise parrot, the golden shoulder is a grass feeder, and they like to hang out on the ground. Although this does place them out in the open, it also provides them with a good view to spot any predators that might be trying to sneak up on them. But with changing land use thanks to agriculture and fire suppression, the native grasslands are being crowded out by native trees and shrubs. The results have been thicker environment that both deprives the bird of their natural food and makes it easier for predators like butcher birds and kookaburras to sneak up on the little fellows. But while in the 1920s, Chisholm and Cyril had an inclination that this change in land use was behind their bird's decline, they didn't have the tools or know-how to reverse it. Today, we do. Up in the Cape York, some major conservation efforts are being led by Stephen Murphy, who, spoiler alert, we will be meeting again next week. And he, with a group of other ornithologists, are making efforts to restore the environment to give the golden-shouldered parrot a better chance of survival. Their hope is that as they restore habitat, the bird will have a better chance to return to their historic range. They also bring back indigenous fire knowledge and backburning practices, tapping into the local knowledge of the traditional owners of the land. This is being led through the Artemis Fund. In addition to habitat restoration, Artemis is also protecting nests from predators to increase the number of baby parrots that fledge. This involves a combination of electric fences and meat ant control. Little meat ants are responsible for attacking the fledglings while they're still in the nest. And they're also putting up protections against feral cats, as well as providing supplementary food to help the parrots through periods of food shortage. This is all having an impact. Just this year, flocks of juvenile birds that were at least 30 strong were spotted, which is the largest number seen for years. If you're interested in the work of Artemis or want to provide a donation to assist their efforts, I have left a link in the description. With any luck, we can avoid losing the paradise parrot's closest relative and keep the tally of extinct birds in Australia at one. At any rate, I hope you have enjoyed this little exploration on the paradise parrot. Now, when we come back next time for our special 50th episode, we'll be looking at another rare Australian parrot that for a long time was also suspected to be extinct until it was dramatically rediscovered. They are considered the most elusive bird on earth, the night parrot. 
so you won't want to miss that one. Now, if you want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about the spotted nightjar. Just how do you get the night into a jar, and what does that have to do with birds? You know, I know the Paradise Parrot would have been the ideal tie-in for this episode, but I kind of gave that one away for free through the episode. You see the kind of primo bird content you could be getting. And you can get it all for the low, low price of just $2 a month. I'm practically giving it away. All you have to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week or one word link in the description to find out more. And if you would like to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show. Just like my good friends, Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Ho, Dar Fuller, and Richard Clark from Minty Fresh. And if you would like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, you can drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com. I will add you to the mailing list where you will receive a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you again for listening, and I hope you will tune in again soon. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Like, if you're going to call something the Paradise Parrot, like, of course you're going to want to get that in your aviary. It's like the birds of paradise, you know? Paradise, heaven. You just got to want that thing, right? It's like, it's brilliant marketing. Brilliant marketing. You know, devastating marketing, but brilliant marketing.